Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. All right. Well, Krister, uh, actually, that 10 seconds is kind of a nice grounding beginning, you know, nice mm-hmm. kind of meditative way to begin a podcast like this. But anyway, I'm so glad you're doing this. You know, thank you so much for being a guest on the Peace Building Podcast. And, uh, you know, you're just one of my dearest and most esteemed colleagues and collaborators. And uh, it's really an honor to have you here. And I, I, I will be totally transparent this is my first interview, so I'm, you know, a little nervous, um, but I think um, you're an appropriate person to uh, to be my first because um, you've been such an inspiration. I mean, this, as I've told you, this podcast wouldn't even, I wouldn't even begin to launch this without you, so, mm. um, which will become clear when I say a little bit more about you and you talk about your background and things like that, so... Sure. Well, great to be on your show, Susan. And, um, you know, a real honor to always be in conversation with you. And, um, you know, really just great to be here. And also to be on the other side of the uh, interview table for a change. You know, I'm oftentimes, uh, as a podcaster, interviewing others. So really nice to be on the other side as well. So. Yeah, so let me say, let me tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, and then and then why we're referring to uh, you know you being the inspiration for this show. Um, so Krister is uh, is really Dr. Krister Lowe. He's an organizational psychologist. Got his degree from Columbia University a couple of years ago. Um, he's a leadership and team coach. And he's the creator of the Team Coaching Zone podcast uh, and um, website, which is called teamcoachingzone.com. He specializes in team coaching, getting a deep specialization there in conflict resolution and performance management. And he has more than 15 years of experience consulting to diverse organizations in more than 25 countries uh, throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, and the Americas. Um, he, his coaching, consulting, facilitation, and training interventions have reached more than 20,000 people globally. Um, and he's got a range of different kinds of sectors that he works in, uh, professional services, international organizations, financial services, foundations, pharmaceuticals, education. So it's a, like... All I can say is I've known Christopher for quite a while. He is a super interesting, super, uh, he's just an exceptional human being and professional. So um, really, really a pleasure to have you here. Uh, anything, when you hear that, anything else that um, you want to add to your, your background, creds, sure. anything like that? that well, thanks so mind? much for that introduction. You know, it's really... Um as I lis- was listening to your introduction, I was really, it was a great description, I think, of who I am now. And, um, but, you know, where I come from and really going back to 15, 16 years, my early journey really started off in conflict resolution and peace building. And that's sort of been an evolution into how I ended up getting into, you know, team and group coaching today. And, you know, going back to the beginning, you were a real inspiration to me, Susan, around your work around collaborative negotiation and conflict resolution. And that really, in a way, was my source of motivation early on in my career. So, so back at you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, about um, because of course this the focus here is peace building. Um, you know, is um, any of the seeds that you think you know wh- when you think back? I mean, you just referred to some of it, but like uh, a- any seeds that you could imagine planted in you that got you interested in this whole field of conflict resolution and peace building. Yeah. Well, actually, it was in 1998, I went to Columbia University, a teacher's college, to do a master's degree in organizational change in social and organizational psychology. 
And my first semester as a graduate student, I wasn't allowed to take the courses I wanted. <laughs> and uh, I ended up people saying, why don't you take the basic practicum in conflict resolution? I didn't know what conflict resolution was about. It was a four-hour course every Monday night uh, for 10 weeks. Very, very, so right? anyways, I jumped in and it was this incredible experiential course. And you know, one of the instructors of that course, Dr. Sandra Hayes, who's now one of our business partners, um, you know, little did I know back then that that would lead to eventually, you know, doing business together later on in the journey. But it was really my first experience, um, really an adult, an experiential adult learning, I should say. And the topic of collaborative negotiation skills and conflict resolution was really new to me. And I really felt moving out of that course really just an eye opener to a kind of socio-emotional learning that I never had experienced before. And it really just whetted my appetite. And from there, I went on. I did, I did my master's degree in organizational change, but I also did the conflict course. I got certified as a mediator in New York State. I did the whole certificate in conflict resolution at the, the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. And actually, I don't know if you remember, Susan, but it must have been around 1999 or so. I went down and supported you as an assistant when you were delivering a three-day collaborative negotiation skills course to United Nations staff members. I actually remember it really well, and I have that picture. Well, it was on my wall. I've been renovating. <laughs> it's going back <laughs> up on my wall, but it, but I have that photograph of us standing oh. together with that group. So I'll have oh, wow. to, yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen that picture. I'd love to see that. But, you know, so I think for me, there was something about being in that community, which I think may be an interesting theme for us to explore in today's podcast is around being part of a community of practice. And, you know, at that time I was in my late 20s. I was just getting going on my graduate career. So I had no idea where I was headed and how the life journey would unfold. But now going back to it, I really see that as like a real kind of fertile ground where a lot of seeds were planted, which, you know, germinated later. And, you know, part of that journey um, at Columbia was also, you know, becoming a mediator in, in Washington, in, um, in becoming a mediator in, in the Bronx. And then one of, one of our colleagues, Tony Hacking, he also became a mediator. I met him in the mediation training and he went to Washington Heights to do his sort of uh, internship part of the mediation training. I went to the Bronx. But eventually, we ended up getting involved in a peace-building project in Washington Heights through the Conflict Resolution and Mediation Center that he was a part of. And that's sort of another you know, interesting part of the journey that really set the groundwork, which I think in some ways, I feel like I'm coming back to now 15 years later that that work in working with middle school kids in nine middle schools around something called the Peace Workshop, I think had a lot of elements in it, which in a way were forecasting you know, down the road the kind of work I would eventually come back to. So... That's super interesting. Yeah. I um, and I want to come back to that because that's a super mm. interesting thing that you just said. Yeah. Um, but before I before we do, I just wanted to just ask you one other kind of. I mean, anything anything that you think personally that that uh, that caused you to shift or change as a result of, you know, how did you grow as a human being? How did you change doing that conflict that early conflict resolution work? Why did it? Why did it grab you at a at a personal level, assuming yeah. it did. Yeah. Well, I think something around um, being equipped with a set of, you know, competencies, basically, a set of knowledge, skills, and attitudes around how to engage with other people in a different way was really, you know, was really sort of mind-blowing for me at the time. You know, I come from a Swedish family. Conflicts were generally avoided um, rather than discussed and negotiated. And so I think for me, there was a real empowering part to this and and you know and it was just more than it was more than just the skills i think it was really a mindset and a set of attitudes around win win negotiating that developmentally we can get to a stage where it doesn't have to be win lose or accommodate or dominate but really one where actually we can get creative and where both of us can get our needs and interests met and i think that for me was really mind blowing and i think it's you know in some ways it, it's an ideal but i think having that i've been able to bring about that that kind of condition and outcome a lot more because I, I got that training than if I would have, if I never would have gotten that. So that is, uh, thank you very much. It's, um, yeah, it's funny how those eureka moments can then carry on through the th next, the next things that we do. And, um, you know, there's one other preliminary thing that I think is probably pretty interesting. Lots of, there's so many things that sure. would be interesting about you, Krister. But one thing that I think would be worth saying at the outset is, is your thesis. What did you do your thesis on? Could you say a little bit about that? And, uh, yeah, so my doctoral dis dissertation, which if you Google it, Krister Lowe, it's Conflict Climates and Organizations, a Decision-Making Model 
for participation in conflict resolution training. So basically, I, I did a study. Um, it's actually my data set was the was a UN agency, which I won't I won't name here to keep it confidential. But I basically did a global study of that organization around the climate of conflict, and I studied you know two kinds of climates. Um, one around a positive conflict climate where conflicts are really used to stimulate creativity and problem solving and better performance versus a climate which is more negative where when there's a negative conflict climate it just creates an atmosphere where people are you know less likely to you know engage in a collaborative way probably more in a competitive way avoidance or you know passive aggressive kinds of behaviors so you know my dissertation was really looking at what i would call a precursor to culture is organizational climate so people who are in the field of organizational psychology will understand that but climates are things that are that can help bring about culture which tends to be a little bit more longer standing um, but climates can shift a bit easier and if you want to bring about culture change in an organization a good place to start is by shifting climates which are a little bit more malleable so yeah. that's yeah, what yeah. my study was around and yeah. you know ultimately in some ways influence my decisions to move into coaching and team coaching and maybe we'll get into that during the um, the interview today yeah I had one one really seminal experience for me uh, actually at teachers college where we had two groups that were completely demographically identical and um, I don't think you were part of this uh, but the the group that I was working with we started off with really you know good climates you know like really setting the climate so that uh, People were connecting. It was relational climate, um, mm. positive climate, and the other group started. With, if I was there, that's the group I'd, I'd like to associate myself yeah, with. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. The Just other joking. group, uh, no, but the other group, interestingly enough, um, and I should say in the background that that race was a big uh, topic in these groups. It was a very multicultural. Both both groups were demographically the same and very multicultural, and race was out there in the in the you know as part of the mm -hmm. conversation and the second group um started off with a prisoner's dilemma game and you know how those games they can really they can really tick people off they can mm -hmm. make people feel pretty hostile and distrusting of each other right away because yep. you know people it's very it can be very win-lose you know and and those who end up trying to cooperate and feel like they're doing the right thing uh end up getting very screwed if somebody if some group doesn't want to do that and goes for broke and tries to be competitive. Yeah. Anyway. I actually think I was in that group, Susan. Yeah, maybe you were. <laughs> I, maybe I you were. you were intentionally wanting to yeah. have some fun and be competitive. That might know, be. So, but, I <laughs> but anyway, yeah, remember, I think the race issues really broke out in that, in that group. And they didn't break out in the other group. And uh, which is, you know, to your point about climate and how much it can affect what happens in groups as a result of it, you know. Well, it's, you know, context. And I think... In organizational psychology, you know, we we look back at Kurt Lewin's, you know, fundamental yeah. theory of human behavior, which is that human behavior is a function of the person in its interaction with the environment. And so, you know, environmental factors and context shape a huge amount of our behavior. So yeah. that's sort of why I was interested in studying that for my for my my dissertation. Yeah, very cool. So all right. So um I wanted to get into some specifics. I mean there's um you've mentioned Washington Heights and you said something that was pretty interesting about it, which is that you know, thinking thinking about that, it's actually you almost feel like you're coming full circle. So that was a really interesting comment and I'd love to hear yeah, you that's elaborate. A good place to start. Okay. That's, yeah. Yeah. So, so should I jump into that? Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like in, in the time that we have, I, I mean, it seems like uh, that seems like an interesting story to tell. And then I, I do know you have a lot of the work that you did with the United Nations. I have a feeling that people will really love hearing about that. So I'd love you to talk about that, too, yeah. if, you're, if you're interested. You might, um, no, but, you keep the high level, and then uh, you, can, you can dig into whatever you, you think okay. may be worth exploring. Yeah. Okay. So basically, should I jump in? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. So yeah, the, the high level story there is, um, you know, got trained as a mediator, you know, did some of this conflict resolution, other courses at Columbia, and, um, you know, went down to the UN with you. And then eventually, I ended up in Washington Heights with one of our business partners, Tony Hacking. And the the mediation the conflict resolution and mediation center there it's called the Institute for Mediation and Conflict Resolution this is like 1999 I remember them yeah um, they won a contract from New York City a fifty thousand dollar contract to do some work with youth in schools and so Tony knew that I had a bit of background doing some work with youth uh, my undergraduate degree was in English language and literature and teaching seventh grade to twelfth grade although I never went on to be become a teacher 
um, of that age. And um, so he recruited me in and we sort of co-led this project called the Peace Workshop, which is something we, we created from scratch. We recruited another 10 or so graduate students and we basically went out to the middle schools underneath this grant and we, we had a couple elements that we envisioned in the program. And what I and before I jump into describing those, what I love about this story is I think there's a little bit of a lesson in there around before you're deeply ingrained in the practices and norms and best practices of an industry, you oftentimes come to the work with fresh perspective and fresh insights. So we yeah. were total we we're totally green, mm-hmm. never had done any real conflict work other than, you know, mediating community-based disputes in the mediation center. And, you know, we, we envisioned this kind of creative program, which had three big elements. So the first were 10 lessons, 45-minute lessons once a week around conflict resolution skill building. So we would go in and we taught kind of a collaborative conflict resolution model using the acronym PEACE. And each each uh, letter in PEACE stood for a different step in the conflict resolution process. And we had a lot of games and fun with that. And so while the 10 weeks were unfolding and we had these weekly lessons, um, the second element was that the kids would be broken up into peace building teams to create a peace project of their own choosing, whether it was arts, whether it was like fundraising, um, you know, coming up with dances or whatever, but for them to work as a small team around building culture, uh, a culture of peace in their school and in their community. And so it was really up to them and the kids, you know, created all kinds of of projects. And so we created some space for them to work on that so they could be in the act of creating peace on the cultural level. So we felt that the training was useful to give them new attitudes and skills and ideas about conflict and uh, conflict resolution and peace. But we also wanted them to kind of build a more longer term cultural context, contextual type of elements. And then we ended each 10 week cycle with a peace festival in the school. (laughs) Each classroom Uh would nominate one or two of the peace projects to showcase. So there was a lot more projects at the end of the 10 weeks, but we would have like eight or nine of them. We do a peace festival in the school, invite community leaders and, you know, the school and, you know, and basically these three elements comprise the program. And this went on for about two years, you know, a few thousand kids went through this, this program. And, you know, the long story was a bigger fish came into the school system at the district level and they ended up implementing peer mediation programs. What do you mean? Uh, a, what do you mean a bigger fish? Well, uh, so we were just a small, you know, fifty thousand dollar grant, yeah, yeah. and you know we were covering nine schools in Washington Heights, and basically at the district level of the school, a big, um, a big company or a big initiative came in that was more like a ten million dollar project right, to, to implement mm-hmm. peer mediation programs. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing about that was, I think our program was a lot more innovative. We were also doing peer mediation with the kids, but we kind of came in at more of a grassroots level and we got it, you know, and I think this is a, a, a lesson in change management, which I think happens in, in big companies and organizations as well, is that, you know, sometimes you can do some great work for three or four years. In this case was two years. And then, you know, other forces are at play and can kind of wipe out everything you've done. <laughs> do you think it really did wipe out what you had done? Or I think so. I mean, mm. I think we saw really some great signs and I, the principals and so, a few of the schools we were in were really disappointed because I think what they felt like they got in replace for what we were doing was way less, like 10% of what we were bringing. But, um, what a shame. Yeah. Ooh, what a but shame. It, for me, so the reason why I sort of said that that experience was a little bit prescient in the sense of bringing me back is, you know, I've kind of gone out as a practitioner. I ended up in 2003 and 2004 bidding on um, a United Nations contract, which you had had for many years, and started doing that work and traveling around the world doing collaborative negotiations and mediation skills training for UN staff members. And, you know, I eventually, I think where I'm cycling back to is really coming back to my roots around working with systems, working with with teams and the group part. And, you know, while I see training is useful, I feel like training is oftentimes necessary but insufficient to really, you know, bring about systems change. And I think that's sort of where my, my roots are in that work in Washington Heights. But now I've sort of evolved. I went through a phase doing a lot of training work you know, in the United Nations. And then, you know, now I'm well, sort of moving to the team coaching and the systems coaching, which I feel is, is a little bit more on the systemic nature. But Yeah, we, yeah. And I want to get into that. Um, yeah. And I want to just find out before we uh, cycle off of Washington Heights, because that's a really interesting story. I mean, a pretty... Um, a pretty comprehensive intervention with training and t- and and teams, you know, students building cultures of peace, yeah, you know, doing yeah. projects, and um, yeah. and then the peace festival, and I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, do you have an example of a project? Do you remember any examples of what they did? 
Yeah, I mean, there were all kind. You know, one of the ones that sticks to my mind, which may not sound like sort of a you know a big systemic kind of impact, was just a group of young boys. These are all like Dominican kids, you know. Yeah. And I'm, you know, Swedish American guy. Yeah. You know, but I had these. Um, I remember these young boys that le- that would invite me to come to the school an hour before school started at seven thirty. So they would get themselves to school an hour early by their own choice. This wasn't my choosing wow. to write poetry about wow. peace. Wow! And I have these moments. I got a little bit of tingles just you know saying that now and thinking yeah. about it. But I remember these moments at like seven thirty in the morning, being in the classroom, you know, with three or four boys while they were writing poetry about peace. You know, and it was like it was really special in that sense. I have other memories. Uh, you know, we created a. One of the other interesting things that came out uh, eventually out of in one of the schools was we created a peace center, and we would actually mediate out of there. And I was training some of the kids to be mediators and handle conflicts. And I, I would have these moments where I'd be sitting around with these youth. These are middle school kids, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, and just having these amazing conversations around them as people and seeing their confidence growing in them and the self esteem and. You know, and I think that's sort of one of the things that the research on peer mediation shows is that the mediators in those programs tend to get the most benefit right? because <laughs> yeah. they're actually learning. And but it was I think the the it gave them a purpose, and you know they were they were going out and scoping out the fights that were were going to happen that day at the school, and they would bring the kids in, and I'd be a fly on the wall in the back, and they would try to mediate. And I think you know a lot of times they did prevent you know things from escalating into violence in their world and at their level. Um, but it also created this space for us to connect on a human level. And, you know, honestly, I think it's so true, not only in middle schools, in families, in organizations. I think what we all crave as human beings is authentic connection. Mm-hmm. And I see that in the companies I'm working with. Mm-hmm. And I saw that at the UN. I saw it in the middle school kids. I feel like we've created settings and environments which really aren't allowing people to really bring out fully who they are in an authentic way and have real connection. So, Well, I think it's yeah. the reason that Brene Brown is getting, you know, she was like, has been showcased at TED and she's getting so much mm. play. And I think because she's talking about this, she's, and she will say, you know, the biggest issue going on here is disengagement, that people yeah. are want connection. They want yeah. to be connected and in an authentic way. And yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, so I think, you know, we had all kinds of other projects. The kids were, you know, raising money for people with HIV or, you know, other kinds of social projects so there so there was a lot of really cool ones and a lot of great singers and dances <laughs> and artworks and yeah. murals but i think for me the thing that stuck with me were in a way what you were just alluding to is really maybe even more like on an emotional level that you know we want to connect to other human beings not just on cognitive levels and intellectual levels but on a human emotional level and even maybe a spiritual level so i think those are the things that you know really stick out for me that um, I, I remember from that experience. Yeah. So I, I'm, a, you know, um, I'm aware of the time passing, but I do want to yeah. ask you one other thing about that, which is that, you know, in retrospect, because you didn't, you say you alluded to what their reality was that they were, that the program was trying to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, any comments about, I mean, it, this, I know there wasn't money to come in and follow up and study what mm-hmm. the impact was, but any anecdotal, I mean, you just did say something about it, but do you think there was any shift or change in that whole system other than individuals? Do you think that the system shifted at all we, that we you could see? Yeah, we definitely noticed, I mean, temporary shifts. And I think this goes back to the idea of climate rather than culture. I don't think our work eventually really shifted organizational culture or the school's culture. But, you know, following those those peace festivals that we would do at the end, those celebratory events, there was definitely like a noticeable, you know, feeling in the in the room. And, you know, what I would say probably for me, the lo- more longer lasting effects were, especially the kids that I had ongoing relationship with through the Peace Center. I saw them, a lot of them blossoming in terms of self-esteem. and. Yeah. Yeah. confidence and ability to engage others. So, so I mean, I think probably it was the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, had we been able to build on that and get a larger investment, maybe it could have gone to another level and been integrated in the school culture. But, you know, one of the things about changing culture in organizations and, and you know, in schools as one type of organization, it takes years. You know? I know. And, so, all, and we know so. how burned out these systems get because there's sort of the trend yeah. of, you know, this comes in and then somebody else comes in and then somebody else comes in and... And people in the yeah. system get a little like, okay, now, you know, we have to shift, we have to change, we have to do with a new, a new program, and it's too bad that there can't be consistency and really yeah. trying to work something over time. And, 
you know, one of the things for me at that time was I was actually having such a great experience with these kids. It was like a peak experience. I was really on the fence about just forgetting to do the finish the doctorate and just yeah, go wow. all in. And wow, that's interesting. And, and then around that time, this big fish came in at the district level, like I said, with the peer mediation program. So I decided that was a good time to exit. And you know, I made the choice to go on for my doctorate and finish that. And, you know, my journey sort of then just continued. And, you know, the way I ended up winding up to the UN is I actually got a grant from Columbia from the International Affairs School to do a re summer research study. Um, and I got a grant to go to Switzerland. And there was a, a, a peace building program called Education for Peace that was doing some really large scale peace education work in Bosnia. And I had some relations on the periphery of that of that um, program. So I went to Switzerland and connected with some of the folks who were running that. They were running it from Switzerland, but you know many of their main players were living in Bosnia. And so that for me was a really, and, and part of what I went, the reason why I went after studying with that group, I eventually went on to do a research study for them in exchange for um, collecting some data on the peace building work. Christopher, uh, is this where you met Nagme Sobani? Yeah, I met okay. Nagme Sobani, uh -huh. you know, through that. And, um, and so I ended up doing some evaluation research on their program, you know, uh, in exchange for collecting some data, which I used for some of my doctoral training requirements. It wasn't for my dissertation, but, um, I was really inspired by their work because, you know, I came out of the Washington Heights experience wanting to see peace building on a large scale that was impacting culture. And uh, I don't know if you have plans to have Nagme on the podcast. I do. But I do for sure. Would so they really did peace building and peace education in a war-torn setting over 10 years and engage hundreds of thousands of students and teachers. And it's a really great example. So I went to study and learn from them a bit. Um, interestingly, through that connection, I ended up being introduced to the president of a company in New York City, a guy named Alan Richter at QED Consulting, who had been doing some work at the United Nations, and we ended up teaming up and eventually bid on, um, you know, some conflict resolution work uh, at the United Nations, and that's how I wound up. I, I wound up going there, and I think you know that was coming on the heels after you had a real twelve-year, I think about a twelve-year run, right? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I think what would be super interesting is just to paint a picture of that, like, and really the picture. Uh, before I'd like, I'd love to dive into a, an example, but. Um, like, where were you with that contract? Just give us a high-level picture of all the places that you traveled and yeah. all the people that you touched, and really all the places that you traveled, because you were like yeah. all over the place. Well, yeah. it was really funny. You know, we won the contract I think in two thousand three, and it took like a year to get up and running the way the UN works. And I remember my first trip was to go to Geneva, Switzerland, and I was a broke graduate student, doctoral student. I was like three or four years into my doctoral training and I didn't have the money literally to buy the plane ticket. You know, in those days they used to fly as business class yeah, and everybody right. dressed really nicely in Geneva and I didn't have like nice clothes. Oh, I remember just uh -huh. cobbling together, you know, like a presentable, you know, attire and anyways, borrowed money to get out there. And that was sort of like my beginning, you know, and I went out and did like a five day long conflict resolution training program. And that was sort of the beginning. But, you know, little did I know over the course of two contracts, two successive four-year contracts with some extensions in between, it kind of stretched out for like 10 or 11 years. I ended up going to all these places I'd never imagined going, you know, in peacekeeping operations in Sudan and in Lebanon. I was down on the south border of, you know, Lebanon and uh, Israel and, you know, went out to Rwanda and Tanzania and, you know, Kazakhstan and, you name it, down the Caribbean. I mean, we're all over the place. So yeah, really. that was really one of the, really the fun things about working with the UN was getting to go to great places, but obviously the cultural diversity. And in some ways, the whole theme around teams really kept coming up because what I noticed a lot in the UN is, you know, we would throw these, they would throw these diverse teams together. Well, to before you, yeah. can I interject and before you go yeah, there, okay. so what were you doing? I mean, with all those trips, like what were you, what, what was the content of what you were delivering? Yeah. So a lot of them were like two-day workshops, three-day workshops in negotiation skills training, more for workplace in the workplace or internal conflict resolution, I would say. But we're training people in mediation skills, managers and leaders in mediation skills. Sometimes they would use that internally, but also sometimes in you know working with their partners. You know, we did some interesting work in South Lebanon around training some of the um, the leaders who were facilitating, you know, monthly talks between the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and the Lebanese Armed Forces on the border. And so we were trying to equip them with some, you know, better mediation skills. But it, eventually the work led into all kinds of stuff like group interventions and coaching and mediations. I, you know, I remember one time I was out in one of the peacekeeping missions and, um, you know, I was doing this training for leaders 
And uh, I ended up mediating, you know, a four-hour conflict between two leaders because nobody else there at the mission had those <laughs> skills. And uh-huh. it was like on a Friday, I'm like, I've got four hours before I leave. And we, you know, jumped in and did a, did a mediation, you know. Um, but even I have, I have memories in Kenya after some political violence kind of flying in, waiting to land in Nairobi, not knowing if I landed, if it was going to be total chaos or not. Landing to hear that you know that was when there was a the huge uh, uh, semi civil war going yeah, on exactly. right yeah yeah so I was in air not knowing if I was going to land in total chaos or not but as I was landing or in flight Kofi Annan was able to reach a deal in mediating and but doing some some healing work with UN staff of the different sort of K- Kenyan tribal backgrounds and doing you know reconciliation and healing workshops you know for staff around that because i think that conflict was starting to show up in the dynamics at the office you know in the um, the un hub there which is a major Absolutely. hub for, for yeah, eastern yeah. africa so right. yeah so the un work um really amazing and then i think you know over time after about 10 years started blending more training gr- small and large group facilitation methods like appreciative inquiry and open space into into my work and you know probably most recently one of the highlights for me was doing a an intervention with a team of 50 people that's, that blended a lot of different elements together and also led to some coaching of a leadership team afterwards, which kind of was, you know, I think a nice, um, a nice example of a project that encompasses, again, the kind of work that I really love to do now. Yeah, it'd be good to, is, let me ask you one other question before, I'd love you to, to fill that out a little bit. Yeah, um, but when you think about, so all those people you touched, I mean, from, I mean, they're all UN, but they were from you know, just basically uh, highly multi multicultural crowd from all over the world. Um, any insights about uh, the process of, um, you know, the impact on being mm. exposed to conflict resolution skills? You know, how that, I know it was a training intervention, mm. but at the individual level, but at some point it was a critical mass of people who got that exposure. Any, any thoughts uh, about how you think that impacted them? Mm. You know, and of course, there are many, so that you might not be able to generalize, or impacted the system as a result of yeah. all that work. Well, kind of like the work in Washington Heights, I guess, in a way, um, very similar in the sense of lots of anecdotes of individual transformation. You know, I think a lot of people got inspired to go on and get additional degrees. Many people decided to go on to become mediators. So I think for many people, it was like kind of a... Mediators inside the UN system or mediators? Yeah, exactly. So they went out to get, became professional mediators and brought that in and tried to bring that in either in formal roles in mediation or just as part of being leaders or managers or, you know, change agents in the system. So lots of stories of that, you know, lots of stories of teams where we really repaired, you know, bad dynamics and got them up and running again. And, you know, from a research standpoint, it's always hard to measure you know, the the diffusion of these effects across the system. And so, you know, it starts to become kind of hard to measure. We, you know, one institute came in, the ROI Institute came in to do sort of a longitudinal study of four groups that went through some of these training over the course of a year. And it definitely showed impacts in that study, you know, like that the the skills training, you know, um, had some impact. But again, you know, in terms of how to measure that on an organization the size of the UN globally, it's just really hard. It, it, it's really hard to say. So, yeah. Um, yeah. but enough that I definitely over time sort of felt like while the training was very helpful, I also started to adjust my expectations of how much I was really going to be able to impact the culture of the UN and system through, you know, through training. You know, I, I actually felt like it was really essential, but there needed to be more. And um, right. you know, I think this is one of the challenges of organizations is, Training is an easy, manageable thing to get your head around. So we like to throw a million dollars, you know, for example, like the UN did at training lots of groups of people. And I think that's helpful. And it's also not enough, right? To well, and this may be a little bit of a provocative statement, but it's always a question as to whether tr- training, um, you know, like it, 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 it kind of takes the heat off of what really is needed in terms yeah. of organizational change. It's Can like window dressing. Yeah, yeah, we're doing that. We're doing that. We got it covered with the training program, but, um, yeah. but in fact, it's not really addressing the, the core of what needs to happen to change a different, yeah. change the culture and create a, a really a truly collaborative organization. Um, yeah. So you said that, yeah. I think it created that, watering hole so to speak for a lot of folks like in Washington Heights with those kids and right. you know we, we're seeking spaces for authentic human connection right and I think across all these cultures and diverse groups you know once we got past these sort of initial 
barriers around those things, you know, on a, on a universal level. I think people really crave that space and really loved it, just like I did yeah. when I went through the collaborative negotiation skills yeah. training as, as yeah. a graduate student. Yeah. So you were, t- you were starting to talk about one example um, uh, where you uh, did a, a retreat. It was a retreat type of setting with 100 UN mm-hmm. staff or something like, or, or something yeah, so like that? Yeah, so 50 UN staff, 50 UN they staff. were okay. sort of a multi-agent. They worked across agencies mm-hmm. and, you know, to maintain the confidential, confidentiality mm-hmm. around it. I'll just say that they, they worked in sort of a way to support operations globally. Yeah. And um, they were, you know, after a couple of years, they, had, they didn't have the budget to get together too often. So they brought all of them to Long Island uh, outside of New York City where a lot of UN retreats happen. And uh, I got one day to work on fostering more collaboration across this this community as a whole. And, um, you know, they basically were representing different parts of the UN system. And they were a bit beaten up after, you know, the work they do is really draining and stressful. They're in a service role and, you know, the well just kind of gets empty. And so when I, when we, I had a colleague with me there, we we're co-facilitating this one day intervention. You know, when we looked at the group assembled at eight, eight in the morning or 8.30 in the morning when we started, it was like, it didn't look like the lights were on. Nobody was at home, you know, on the facial expressions. Uh-huh. It wasn't just early yeah. morning, yeah. you know, grogginess. But yeah. there was a there was, it was like, maybe a little desperation. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of hope, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of deflated look, mm-hmm. you know. And so like many of these interventions and going back to the idea of climate, one of the things I became a big believer of over the course of my work doing this is that if you can set the right kind of climate, and in some groups, climate setting may take a couple hours, yeah. right? Yeah. In some cases within a mediation, maybe it's 15 or 20 minutes. But one of the big lessons I learned is if you can get the climate right and set a good climate and do some work around that as your first target, all kinds of things are possible. But if you don't establish a a really good climate that helps you create an enabling environment or a holding environment, it's just really like pulling teeth to get people to go anywhere, especially around conflict. And it can backfire. Exactly. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. So we basically had a series of things we started off with uh, I've you know over the years I've started to add more arts into my Mm -hmm. facilitation but we started off kind of a a mixture of left brain and right brain kinds of things we had like an introductory activity where they created something called the book cover Um, they had a piece of paper where they you know introduced themselves a little bit and uh, I think on one side of the inside of the cover on the outside it's like their name and then they have to draw a picture to represent who they are and then inside the book cover on the left flap, they would write down some words on a sticky note for what comes to their mind when they think of conflict. Uh-huh. And on the other flap, what are two or three things that come to their mind when they think of creativity? And so we give them a couple of minutes to do this. And then they walk around and they introduce each other by showing their book covers to other people and have them get have the other people guess what the images mean and all that. So it's kind of a fun you know, icebreaker activity. We then took all of the post-it notes and created two columns on a flip chart, one for all the associations around conflict and one all the associations around creativity. Mm -hmm. And so we had a debrief around that and that was like the opening exercise. We then dropped them into an appreciative inquiry uh, interview process where after a couple of moments of reflection on peak experiences doing the work they did as part of this community over the last year, we then had them do paired interviews. Uh, for like 15 minutes, so seven, eight minutes each interviewing with a little interview guide. So appreciative inquiry methodology. And over the course of about an hour and a half, started to then roll up these pairs into groups of four and then groups of eight. And then eventually I think we had like three groups in the room of around, you know, 16 or I don't know what the math is there. Something like roughly about 16 people per group. And, um, you know, had them basically integrate their findings. So it's kind of like a bottom up rolling up process and you know over the course of this hour and a half you could just start to see the lights coming back on in the eyes of people and you know authentic connection happening tapping into when they're at their best which is one of the beautiful things that appreciative inquiry does is rather than focus on problems and trying to fix things that are broken it's really about tapping into what's working and getting into a positive space and creative positive energy yeah, this sounds beautiful. Yeah. This sounds beautiful, yeah. and it's and you sounds like you got the immediate feedback on people's faces. It's just so yeah. rewarding when you see that shift. Yeah. yeah. And then what we did was for each group, we actually had them sort of collate the high level themes that were emerging in the groups of sixteen, but also to draw a metaphor. And the theme, I mean, yeah. the, the thing that they were collating. What was the qu- question that they were answering? It was more about. Um, I guess it had to do with like peak experiences over the last you know year. 
that they wanted to replicate moving forward. It was sort of a little bit of tapping into the best of the past, not the worst. So that and, they, you were trying to yeah. build awareness in them of what's really working and helping them go higher. Yeah, and as a group. you know, we're trying to create a space that day to do a bit of healing and yeah, to really yeah. get them re-energized to kind of regroup as a community because yeah. they were a little bit, you know, little little disunity and a little bit broken. Right. You know. Right, um, and so they ended the appreciative inquiry with each group having a poster of a metaphor describing who they were becoming as a community based on the appreciative inquiry interviews, which was great. And to seal the deal before the the lunchtime, we actually brought in one of your colleagues, is somebody that you recommended. I contact Kat Guthrie, who I believe you'll have on. You may have. She as a will. Guest on yeah, the show. she's going to be a guest on the show. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I won't steal the thunder away from that, but. Okay. Uh, we had really loosened these folks up after about two and a half to three hours. And, um, you know, maybe it was about two and a half hours. And then Kat Guthrie came in for about an hour, an hour and a half, and taught the group how to sing together in harmony. And it was like um, lightning. It just totally worked. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like through the roof dancing and yeah, yeah. singing. And there's something really <laughs> healing about that. Uh -huh. And they went off to lunch like night and day. If you could have taken a before picture and then an after picture, yeah. this was like totally two different groups, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of gratitude and heartfelt thanks and, you know, expressions of this is what we really need. And we're only halfway through the day. It's actually too bad that you didn't have a before and an after picture, you know? I know. It, I know. It, it could be just a, a very simple way yeah. of reminding this group. Exactly. Exactly. What they I have did. pictures of them dancing, though. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyways, but I think what's cool about the, the first part of this story is really the lesson there, I think, for maybe the listeners is really around climate setting. And, you know, in this group, spending a half day getting them in a good place was worth more than just only doing an hour of that and trying to dive into problem solving, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so anyways, the long story short, we came back in the afternoon. We did some you know, icebreaker exercises, we fed them back some data that we had collected in an online survey, and then we used that as a basis to do open space. And um, they ended up doing two rounds of open space. They, they, you know, they dialogued about nine topics of interest to them. And uh, we came out of the open space with like two bullet report outs from each of the nine groups at the end and had like an integration debrief uh, kind of session at the end. And like many of these retreats, you know, it's... um it creates a context. We shifted the climate in that community in that day. And the follow-on story is that one of the recommendations came out was around the community wanting more integrated leadership among the leaders of the various agencies that they represented in terms of more of a shared leadership model and joint leadership and collaborative leadership and modeling more of that. So I ended up going on to do a team coaching uh, engagement with the leadership team of about six or seven people you know, over the course of six sessions um, that really sort of, I think, took that initial work of the community and had some legs to start to, you know, move them to another place as a community. And this, in this, in this case, it was through the, you know, through the leadership team, the senior leadership team of that, that community. So, so again, and I, and I know you probably didn't have the resources uh, to be able to do this, and this is always a little difficult, is any, any observations about a longer term shift or change as a result of them having done this work and having what sounds like it was a really powerful experience for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't other than, again, this uh, outcropping of the, the leadership group. So in some ways, the intervention led to an ongoing engagement with the leadership team mm -hmm. and um, them getting more united about, you know, themselves. And so, you know, my sense is that's really where that energy went to. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of the one of the challenges is a lot of clients really don't want to pay for <laughs> evaluation. Right. So, and there's limited right. budget, so that tends to be one of the things that gets killed off. You right. know, on that one, I haven't really followed up to find out what the longer term effects are. You know, sometimes I do run into groups where I never hear from them again, and then it's like, you know, I run into them later in in different places. That happened a lot in the UN, where where people said, you know, that was a game changer. It yeah. totally changed our dynamics after that. And right. So a lot of these results just kind of dissipate out in there and you never really know. And right. that's, uh, right. I think this is probably an area which we probably need to challenge ourselves more on. I know I do, but it's one of those things where it just takes so much work to just do those things than to really engage in evaluation. Um, it's challenging. So if you don't really build that in in the front end design, it tends not to happen. And I frankly, I've been putting that on the table with a lot of clients and they, people just don't want to pay for it. I so know. They, I know. Me too. To pay out of yeah. pocket, you know, yeah. nobody yeah. wants to drop 10 or 20% of their budget on evaluation, but right. that's right. really what we need to be doing. Right. All right. Well, we, I want to, I want to cycle into um, where you are now and what's happening because a lot of what you're talking about has morphed into what your current, I, I, I know you'd be doing with the team coaching zone. So, 
uh, it would be great for you to speak to, how, you know, how did you get into this work and how is it related to what you've just been talking about? Mm. You know, why is it so exciting to you now? I think it is exciting just from talking to you, you know, or I think you're really excited by it. So, um, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. like, how's it connected and, and uh, why are you excited by, by it? Yeah. It's a new way to go. Sure. Well, I think like all of us, we are um, constantly evolving and have multiple careers within our larger career, right? And so, you know, I had a real good 12 or 15 year run doing conflict resolution work, training, coaching, mediation, group interventions. And one of the things that, you know, was a lesson that was emerging for me around that work was a lot of the teams that I was running into in groups, I felt were struggling with conflict and, you know, disunity because I feel like they probably weren't set up well in the first place and really didn't get into motion good norms and leadership and, you know, design of their work designing the alliance, so to speak, using some of the um, the coach training language. I was trained in a model called the Coactive Model, the Coaches Training Institute. We, we talk about something called designing the alliance. So I felt like a lot of the conflict that groups in that I was experiencing really were a result of you know, poor leadership and poor team dynamics. Well, it's a little and, bit connected to what you were saying yeah. about setting the climate right with right. any intervention. Yeah. You know, that but also, it's about pro prevention, and, pr and you know, mm -hmm. John Burton speaks about the idea of prevention rather than prevention. It's not just, you know, to prevent future conflict from happening, but how do you build resilience and build, you know, wellness in teams so that maybe they experience less destructive or unhealthy conflict in the first place, but when they do experience conflict, they're actually in a place where they actually can address it and have mm -hmm. the ability to do that. And I think that was one of the things I found is a lot of the teams that I would get called into work with and, and leaders. You know, things were so broken by the time I got there, you know, it, you needed to do some serious magic work and transformative work to really get them even back to ground zero, to let alone get them in a dynamic, proactive state. state. So I decided, you know, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Coaching for me seemed like, I felt like a lot of the work I had been doing was very events driven, whether they were training events or, you know, these retreats were a very event driven and very helpful, but a lot of them were one and done types of things. And you know, the idea behind coaching is that change takes time and requires a context of support to grow and, you know, develop goals and have accountability. So, you know, eventually that led me to wanting to do some proactive coaching work with leaders and teams to um, you know, try to really help groups change and grow before they got themselves into so much trouble that they were then asking for help and they're already kind of behind the curve. So that's really what led me to team coaching. And when I, um, you know, executive coaching has become a household name out in, you know, it's common in businesses and organizations, but coaching teams in organizations is still kind of a, a new topic for people. You know, I think when you think about coaching sports teams, it's a no brainer that a team isn't going to be at its best without a coach. But for some reason, when we try to look at trying to do that in organizations, uh, we're not, we're, we're really early in the curve of doing that. So really that's been the focus of my work now and trying to develop some thought leadership and some thinking around coaching teams in a more system, systemic way. And that I think is true for all kinds of teams, whether they're in nonprofits, whether they're doing peace work, you know, or they're working in businesses. And, you know, while I'm on a roll here, I'm getting excited talking about it, <laughs> um, is I, one of the, the things, sad stories for me over the course of my career is being called in to do a lot of work with conflict resolution and peace building teams who internally were doing great work externally with their clients, but internally were really broken, just right. like this, this large team of 50 people I was talking about. Right. Um, they weren't conflict resolution experts, but uh, you, you get the point. So, yeah. um, so I kind of felt like part of that was we need to build healthy, dynamic teams, and more so if you're working in peace building settings. You know, are you a really cohesive unit so you can really model and be, a, be an anchor for folks that are going through um, tough stuff and, and need a solid anchor to, to, to go back to, you know, which, which so, is that peace building team. Yeah. So let me see if, you know, uh, one of my mentors, John Carter from the, um, the Gestalt world, basically always, you know, one of his refrains was always, if you know your intent, you know your intervention. And I, I think what you're saying is, I'm, I'm just curious, the intent of the training and the intent of team coaching sound like they're actually uh, very similar, but yeah. over time you really got to see that actually this intervention might be more impactful, more satisfying in terms of I guess my question is, do you think that's true? Is it the same intent? Mm -hmm. What would the intent be? Yeah. And am I right that you think that now team coaching has a way to create the kind of collaboration that you were seeking to change through the training? 
I think so. And I, I mean, the way I describe the difference is re reactive versus proactive. And um, so I think there is a way for us as individuals or as groups to proactively be investing in our development and in our growth so that we're, we're, not, we're not caught as flat-footed as when we don't do that. And, you know, my experience is we tend not to invest in training and development uh, until we're actually in trouble. Yeah. And so I think that's – and it's – I see them as two sides of this same coin. I think we need to have great skills to deal with moments of stress. And no, no amount of prevention work is going to strip away all, you know, conflict and dissension and tension and maybe nor, nor should it. But – um, I think, you know, a balance of those two are really critical. So I spent so much of my career working in the reactive kind of repair damage and try to help people transform out of that into something positive. And so now I really wanted to shift on the other side and try to do a little bit more of the proactive work, helping teams and leaders really boost their effectiveness, um, you know, hopefully before they get themselves into real quagmires or, or get really stuck and derailed. You know? Well, it's one of the reasons I think there's a strong link between mediation and team coaching because lots of times people won't really, you know, they, they don't get, quote, in Kurt Lewin's language, they won't get unfrozen. They won't get ready to actually make the change or see that they need to do some work until they have a train wreck. Mm. <laughs> and then, That can be true. You know. I mean, I think an analog to that is, you know, if you go back to the work of Richard Hackman, one of the things he would say, like, you know, teams tend to work on an annual cycle, just as human beings, we work in these rhythms, right? And so he would say, you shouldn't really do a lot of your strategy work until you're halfway through the performance cycle. And the reason why he said that is you kind of need to hit the ground and do some work and, you know, start to move in certain directions. And once you're kind of in the middle of your flow, you have enough context, you have enough sense of where you're going, what you're doing, to then really start looking at your strategy, you know. And so, um, so that's where, like in team coaching, midway through a performance cycle, is when the rubber hits the road. We start to really start storming, you know. To use, um, you know, Bruce Tuckman's idea that teams go through forming, storming, norming, and performing stages. And so, it's kind of when the group is in the storming mode, it's getting their hands dirty, you know. That's when I think uh, coaching can be really powerful. And where you can kind of help a group from getting stuck there or going too deep into the conflict there, but to kind of, you know, deftly navigate that in a way that actually leads them to getting out of it sooner and, you know, getting their norms established and getting into more of a performance mode. So, so I think my experience, again, is I tend to get called in once they've been stuck in the storming, but like they're storming for two years rather than a month or two. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a different yeah, ballgame yeah, yeah. when you come in when, when, when trust is really broken it's a different ball game. Yeah, so, yeah. So, Krista, we have to start winding down. And as we do that, I, I'm just wondering, I just want to ask you first, like, is anything particularly stimulated right now that you just want to highlight before we, before we shift to, to closure? Anything that, uh, or we might wind it into the closure, actually, for that matter. But anything? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just reflecting on these stories that I shared today and, you know, linking back to the beginning with Washington Heights, you know, I think everything we do is the stepping stone to the thing we do next. Yeah, and and also the there's a bit of a cycling that I feel like I started off with really good instincts early on around doing training, doing work in teams with the peace building teams, and then trying to have a systemic aim. And, you know, I think I've kind of broken those pieces down over the course of my last 15 years. And I did a lot of the training. I'm now really digging into the team stuff. And, but I think the ultimate, you know, objective ultimately is to have that systemic perspective and, and I think, um, you know, that's sort of, I guess, probably the, um, you know, the story for me moving forward and also reflecting on the past is is around really intervening at different levels. But, you know, keeping in mind that we're all part of a system, you know, whether you're a, as an individual, as a team, as an organization and keeping that systemic perspective, I think, is, is, is really uh, is really important. Which uh, is so core to peace building work that's going to have an impact. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So, um uh, yes. Yeah, so how, uh, um, well, I actually, one thing that I want to be asking everybody that is on this show is, uh, as a, as a, as a closing kind of conversation is, um, is, uh, you know, and I know you've had this experience too, that, uh, particularly in doing all the conflict resolution work that many people, when you, you know, when you get, when you do that conflict web and you ask people what comes to mind when they hear the word conflict, you'll get 
different kinds of words like um, that um, that are all pretty negative words, but they all sort of have an intensity and maybe even excitement to them. I don't mm-hmm. know, you know. And and then you get people making comments that peace is boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess a question for you that I'd like to, you know, is this is maybe a pipe dream, but if you could actually see our planet going to the next level, the mm-hmm. next systemic level where we have... Uh, you know, made, uh, we spend at this point, obviously, a huge amount of our human and economic resources and planetary resources, because, of course, mm. you know, it's just hearing that the Navy was bombing up in the, in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, you know, so a lot, mm. of, lot of things go on that are impacting the planet yeah. around military interventions, um, milita- you know, just uh, infrastructure, weaponry. Um, so if we were actually able to take our planet to a different level and make all that stuff largely uh, obsolete, mm-hmm. maybe destructive conflict largely obsolete, what do you think we do with ourselves? Mm. It's a great question, and in some ways it really resonates a lot with my life purpose around trying to really you know, develop a community around team coaching because I feel like as a species we need to evolve to the next level of thinking, uh, collective thinking and collective action. And so this really links to my, my life purpose and also you know, I have a five-year-old daughter and I really want at the end of my life to be able to say what did I contribute to building a world worth living in that I would be proud to have my daughter live in. And um, I'll be honest with you, I don't think it's a pipe dream in the sense that if we actually don't don't fundamentally shift to a higher level of consciousness, we are going to damage planet Earth. And, you know, I've always been interested in astronomy and space travel. And, you know, honestly, I think the way we're operating, we're going to have to evolve off the planet. You know, we have some early inklings of that because, you know, at the end of the day, we don't really know with climate change and, you know, what we're doing here, um, are we going to ruin our habitat, you know, and it'll become unlivable, right? So we don't really know. So, so when you say peace is boring, I think it's um, it's only boring because we've never we've always been living in a conflict-oriented ethos and world and and worldview, and so I don't think peace is being boring at all. I could think peace could be very dynamic and very exciting, and you know think about how much farther we could be in our space exploration if we didn't channel all of our resources into you know mutual self-destruction. Right. Um, I think about sort of, you know, the health and wellness and happiness and, you know, people working. I think here in the Western world, we have such a disease around work becoming all consuming, you know, taking up seven days a week now for many people. And so, you know, I think peace could be very dynamic in the sense of living a more sustainable way of life to have more fun. Mm -hmm. So I think we're missing out a lot uh, on what potentially could be. And, you know, I think in some ways that for me is what the spirit of coaching is about, um, is really about helping us realize the potential as individuals and as collectives around what we potentially can become yeah. rather than ending up by default by not choosing to create what we want to become we end up by default becoming you know what you know other forces are making that decision for us so yeah that's beautiful um, a corollary question you know is i think that there is a perception uh, I haven't studied it, but I think it's out there that 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 you can't make any money off of peace. That you know, and if you just follow the dollars, you know, people make a lot of money off of selling arms. You know, uh, a lot of money. Um, and uh, you know, so is 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 peace something do you have to do you have to go broke to be interested in this? What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I would just say you know, I um, started my podcast in January of 2015. And, you know, within six to eight months, I was immediately seeing results and there was an appetite for people wanting to proactively build dynamic, healthy, resilient teams. And so, you know, if you view that as peace building, which I do uh-huh. in a way, um, I think it can be very profitable and lucrative, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it may be just around the language you're using. Like I'm not using maybe the peace building language with some of my clients, but in a way I view that as peace building right. is what I'm I think one of the dynamic things that comes about when you build peace is creativity. Um, you build sustainability, you build wellness. And so I think there can, actually can be quite a bit of money in uh, actually maybe even more money <laughs> potentially in yeah. peace yeah, well. you know, at the end of the day. A long term, it's maybe a longer term, bigger payoff than a shorter term one. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's right. that James Michener quote. Yeah. Maybe this is an ending quote from yeah. me where uh, I think it was in the book Caribbean where mm-hmm. I picked this up and he said, it just came to my mind now. He It said, um, 
you know, um, brutality always wins in the short run. It takes longer for peace to prevail. <laughs> and I think that really captures a little bit of, you know, the slower nature of peace, but, you know, it's a more uh, longer term kind of impact. So, you know, guns, violence, you know, security definitely, you know, gets us mobilized quicker. And I think we're hardwired for that a bit as human beings. But, you know, that's a, sh- a short, a shorter process, right? Yeah, yeah. So. All right, Christopher. Well, uh, how would if people want to know more about the Team Coaching Zone, like how would they find out about that? How would they find out about your team coaching services? Uh, yeah. Any any uh, parting words that you'd like people to know? Yeah, I think the best place to go would be teamcoachingzone.com. We also have the podcast, the Team Coaching Zone podcast, and iTunes. It's also on Stitcher Radio, so people can check it out there. And if people want to write to me, it's Christer K R I S T E R at teamcoachingzone.com. would love to hear from people. And um, just want to thank you, Susan, for having me on the show today. It was really fun to be here and to be on the other side of the microphone being yeah. interviewed. And, uh, and again, you know, you are a, a big figure in my development early on and continue to be. So a uh, pleasure to be in this space with you today. and wish you must, m- great success and luck with this great work you're doing with the Peace Building Podcast. Yeah, and you too, you know, just listening to you, Krista, I'm always marveling at the, the, the speed at which your brain functions and all the thoughts and ideas that go through it. <laughs> it's really fun listening to you, so I'm sure the listeners have really enjoyed it, and uh, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Have uh, a great day, Susan. Okay, you too. Yep. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peace Building Podcast. Check out www.thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please email them to Susan Coleman at susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And come join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.